offered at their facility. And so we'd love for you to participate in that. Now let's look at what James has to say to us in verse 19, just three verses today, 19, 20, and 21, as we continue our series called Undivided Faith. Uh, Here we are in verse 19 of chapter 1. It says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Let's pray. Lord, we open our hearts to your word this morning. We confess to you, Lord, that we find within ourselves no power to make the changes needed in our lives, especially in the face of the powerful emotion of anger. Lord, we confess our weariness from living in a world where anger abounds. We confess how often, Lord, we have participated in actions and comments and words that were fueled by unchecked anger. We ask that as we receive your word implanted into us, particularly the hope of the gospel, that it would bear fruit in us in transforming our hearts into into places where meekness abounds, where we would be imitators of Christ. We ask for your help in this, that we would learn to obey your word, appreciate your wisdom and instruction, and even be willing to receive it with joy and correct ourselves to walk with you. We pray for all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Everyone is angry. That might be the biggest fact of life that social media has taught us for the past 15 years. But deep down, we already knew it, didn't we? I mean, I mean, sure, you, you may be sitting here this morning and thinking, I'm not angry. What are you talking about? But, but for each of you right now, there's a specific issue, a person, a relationship, an expectation that if we, uh, this week as we were studying this passage together, and, and I told him I was thinking about trying to see if I could say a few things to make everyone angry. And then I was telling them how easy I thought that would be. Because everyone is angry. You know, jump around different sides of issues until everyone got involved in some way. If you pay attention to life, it wouldn't be all that hard to do that, would it be? I think I'm right. I mean, last week, Brian Musler made half of us angry by saying that Taylor Swift's music isn't any good. And I just made the other half angry by bringing it up again. Anger is one of the reasons it seems impossible for us to discuss important societal issues. Even when at the core, we should have some serious level of agreement as Christians. Take racial issues, for instance. As we celebrate Black History Month and the contribution of black Americans to our society and how easy conversations about Black History Month can devolve into anger, defensiveness. 
As Christians, we deeply believe that all people have been created in the image of God. That because of that, the tone of our skin is an interesting God-given variation of our lives. That the character and soul of a person provide the playing field for our deepest senses of human connection. That the evils done through American chattel slavery were heinous and damaging. That sin has corporate and far-reaching effects that cannot be simply overcome by a change in laws. And that the remaining effects are so recent that many of our parents and grandparents grew up in an area Area when era when segregation was still legal under Jim Crow. Yet, with all that level of agreement, we feel uncomfortable talking about these sorts of issues because we know that beneath the surface, in every direction, there seems to be anger. Some of it that's really justified. Some of it that's not <laughs> But why talk about important issues when you face the danger of a landmine of anger? <laughs> so on this and many other issues, there's fairly, very little real talk about the things that are problems in our society because we know that below the surface is a boiling sense of anger in people's lives. It's a part and feature of our reality. An article on TheHill.com from October 2021 outlines the fact that Facebook knew that anger drives content more strongly than other types of interest. And they built the algorithm for a period of time for what content, the algorithm that determined what content it sent uh, users on Facebook's way, it was built on whether it was controversial enough to stir up anger. Supported rage... <laughs> seems to be the emotional experience most people come back to social media to find. You know, that feeling that the right people seem to agree that you really should be upset that they let that balloon float all the way across the U.S. Everyone is angry. Some of you are already starting to feel it a little bit today. And these societal level and social media issues are just the small stuff, really. They're just the small stuff. The real challenge is the real anger that plagues our relationships at home, in our families, with the people that we love or claim to love the deepest. That's the real stuff. Underneath many of the most foolish and destructive things we do to one another, if we dig in, we find unchecked anger Fueling it. Now, some men have even found a way to justify and codify their unchecked anger by declaring themselves an alpha, you know? You better not cross me or you will face my wrath type of thing. But at the end of the day, we are Christians, men and women, who need to learn to live in a world of anger with the wisdom of Jesus. And James does a significant job in helping us with this in these verses. In James 1, 19-21 that we just read, these three verses, James imparts spiritual wisdom for living in a world of anger. Spiritual wisdom. For living in a world where anger abounds both internally and externally. And if we listen closely this morning, God can use this portion of his word through James to impart life-transforming wisdom to you as you deal with this powerful emotion of anger. 
So James does two things in this passage that we're going to look at together. He teaches us, first of all, the practical facts about anger. And second, he teaches us how to put away anger. So those are the two things. We see practical facts about anger that we need to really think about, consider today. And then he also shows us how we can begin to put away anger in exchange for God's wisdom. So let's just do that. The first thing that we're going to look at, first of all, is let's get practical about our anger. In verses 19 and 20, James shares a practical fact fact about anger that drives everything else that is being said. Look at me in the text. Look closely at verse 19, how he starts off. He starts off by saying, know this. Know this. The thing that James is passing along is a matter of knowledge. And this is imparted, revealed knowledge that we need to take to heart if we're going to understand how to navigate the powerful emotion of anger. So he has a bedrock truth that he wants to build this on. Then he sort of says two things, though. He says, know this, and then he says two things there in this verse together. First, he tells us something practical to do. And then he gives us a practical fact. So it kind of begs the question, like grammatically, when I was studying it, which of the two parts of the sentence go with know this? You know, so he know this, now let everyone, you know, be careful, you know, be slow to speak, slow to, but then he says a, a fact on the back end of it. And so I was thinking about that grammatically, and, uh, you know, he, it could be this way, know this, beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. That's the kind of completion of his first thought. But that's, there's another option. It can be, know this, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, grammatically, what James is doing is he's actually showing there's a, the fact of the matter that we're going to build everything else he says is that second one. It's the second. We know this. The thing he wants to know uh, us to know is indicated by the word for there in verse 20. So that's what he's building all the instruction on. The, the sort of bedrock fact is do these things. These are real practical. Let me throw this on there before I tell you the fact I want you to know. Do these things. Be slow. Be careful. I need you to know this is something that you need to really consider. But, but the truth, the fact of the matter about anger that you and I all need to hear is found in verse 20 for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Understanding what that means, understanding how James intends it to help us, is the key today for many of us receiving God's wisdom about how to do, deal with anger. Now before we dig into what does that mean, I want to just zoom out for a second and just ask the question, what exactly is anger? How do our emotions work? What is anger? There's a few things I'd just like to kind of highlight about the way that God made us and how our emotions work, and particularly the, mo- the emotion of anger, so that we're kind of all on the same page. Because I think many of us have grown up in a church world or uh, a context that has entirely told us to just set aside your emotions entirely. They're dangerous. So the only thing we know to do is ignore them, 
and try to sort of gut it out to do the right sort of things. But we, we don't really, you know, God did not create our emotions to be entirely ignored. They're parts of how we understand ourselves really well. And I want to kind of just lay out a, a kind of biblical theology of emotion real quick, just kind of run through. This isn't going to be super deep, but I think it'll help some of you wrap your mind around this and other subjects related to emotion. Number one, anger is our emotion most connected to justice. It is connected to our deep sense of what is right and wrong when it comes to our actions as people. So what is anger? Anger is sort of that felt response in us when we see something right or wrong happening around us or right or wrong happening to us, particularly when we experience injustice, whether it be personal or societal. uh, we we, We begin to feel the experience and emotion of anger. Anger is connected to justice. Second, emotions were created by God for our good. They, you know, what emotions really are is they're fast-paced, intuitive responses that, that take place between the things we experience outside ourselves and the deep, complex beliefs and memories inside of us. If you had to stop, you know, every time something, you're taking in information all the time around you, you had to go and thoughtfully work your way towards those experiences, we, that would just leave us in a really weird place. Actually, what you have is a bunch of beliefs inside of here, and you've got a bunch of experiences outside of there, and you're able to process those often almost quickly without recognizing them going on. That's done on an emotional level. They are a sort of memory of good, bad things. Uh, data that is coming into our lives and the responses associated with them. And they were created by God for our good. They're like a quick reference guide of indicators about how we're experiencing the things that we are experiencing in life. Anger is a part of bearing God's image. God is angry at injustice. And so God created us in his image with these various sets of emotions and we're to understand them as part of how in a healthy situation God has made us. So that leads me to the third thing. Emotions have a healthy function. When functioning in a healthy way, emotions give us a physically felt experience of danger, of risk, of pleasure, of contentment, of excitement, motivation, and other things. Now, if we lived in an ideal world, that would all just work together great. But in a broken world, that presents challenges. In a world where we don't always see things rightly, that presents challenges. But emotions at their root have a healthy purpose and function. Fourth thing, emotions can be tied to unhealthy or immature beliefs. Emotions can be tied to unhealthy or immature beliefs. Since emotions are stored up from the very beginning of your life, as you start processing things, you are storing up memories of those experiences and what they mean and interpreting those things. And they get stored up on an emotional level. They become the ways that you experience similar things the next time. And, and so what happens is emotions, all, we, we begin to develop those even in our immaturity. Also, as we're going to see in a second, in our sinful perspective, we get tied to those things. And so we're establishing some of our emotional Life is being rooted in our immaturity and our inability to process what we're experiencing around us in a sinful world. And so emotions, can, they can be tied to unhealthy or immature beliefs. 
So in a broken world, they can be powered by false beliefs and immaturity. Particularly, our anger is polluted by our sin, by false beliefs about what's right and wrong or we deserve, and poorly processed past experiences. Some of our anger, and much of it, is polluted by those perspectives. It's, it's, it's rarely pure, if ever. It experiences the fall, the pollution of sin. It doesn't fully image God's justice. And it runs the massive danger of motivating us. It's a motivating agent in our life for sinful behavior. Unchecked anger often leads to sinful, dangerous, destructive behavior. So these four things I think are important to have in the background as we deal with it. So we have a good idea to think about because James describes this reality of emotion in a fallen world. The the anger that we possess within us, he he describes this reality as the anger of man. (laughs) Anger rooted in who we are, the way we've processed the world, our immaturity, our lack of wisdom. That's our anger. And it's contrasted here to the divine wisdom of God. So God can be trusted with anger It's a big question mark whether we can really be trusted with anger. And so he's talking here about our anger. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, he says. So that's a big fact that he wants that we need to explore. Uh, Your anger, my anger, doesn't produce God's righteousness. Now, I think it was important, and I was discussing this this week, um, it's not just your misguided anger that doesn't produce God's righteousness. It's even those moments where you feel justified anger, and you might even be right. You have been wronged. You've been mistreated. And right now the question is, what do I do next? How do I act in wisdom? Well, you need to know that anger, given who we are, given our weaknesses, isn't likely to lead to something that produces the righteousness of God. So this isn't a question of whether you're right or wrong for feeling offended. This is a question of what you do next. The anger of man, just practical facts, the anger of man, our anger, does not produce God's righteousness. Listen close to James' words. Even our best version of it, when you are mad and you are in the right, is the sort of thing that someone should be, should be mad about. The, the really false belief is that acting on that anger and its quick reaction demands in your life the really false belief is that that's going to produce something good. See, emotions help us quickly discern things and make decisions. (laughs) But here he says danger awaits as the emotion of anger arises. The quick reactions, the the reactive ways we, we begin to respond as we feel the intensity of anger. He's saying that that it's not the things that come next from that do not produce God's righteousness. Now, if you reflect on this claim that our anger doesn't produce God's righteousness, it's easy to see two ways that it can be beneficial. Here's two ways you could think about this idea that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The first one I think is pretty obvious. We've already been uh, talking about it, but our anger does not produce godly righteous responses in us, right? So it's really rare that strong anger in us produces godly and righteous responses. We justify a lot of what we do based on whether we think we are rightfully angry. 
But just because you believe you were rightfully angry does not mean you were careful in your actions and your responses to use godly wisdom and righteousness as your dominant guide. Anger clouds our judgment. And it seeks to dominate our responses while pushing out much that counts as wisdom. So that one's obvious. See, I, I just don't believe that our quick reactions to anger, based on what James is saying, anger does not produce godly, righteous responses in us. The second one is maybe less obvious, but, but this, it comes out of this statement as well. The second way this practical fact of anger matters to us is understanding that our anger does not produce godly, righteous responses in others. You see, that's what we're really after most of the time. Isn't anger about control? The thing we want to get from someone that they're not giving us? Anger is deeply rooted in our desire to be like God. Our desire to rule over things, to fix what's broken, to bring justice to other people. And in our interpersonal relationships, so often what we do is we step into God's place to whom vengeance alone belongs. And we believe the execution of our wrath will lead to good things in other people, but it actually tends to just produce really unhealthy, bad reactions in others. Because of the ways that shame even in the best intentions, because of the ways that shame and fear work, few people take a wise assessment of their lives and actions when someone has them, when someone is angry at them. I mean, think about the times you've been in the presence of someone that's really angry at you. What did it produce? Did it produce the ability for you To think and examine your life with humble honesty? Almost never. Did it bring out a sense of shame and fear from which some of you fled and others fought? It doesn't produce the environment for godly responses in others. This is the twin way that James is helping us see How futile anger is. It puts me on the path to ungodliness and invites others to join me. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I learned this a few years ago. We were staying in a hotel over the holidays and uh, my brother had hooked us up with seriously nice rooms. And all my kids, you know, like if if you have a big family, it's amazing if all of your kids get a bed when you travel, right? All my kids had a really comfortable bed to sleep in. It was a a miracle. But one of the girls, who shall remain nameless, was having trouble sleeping and kept complaining about their bed and every other little thing that they could come up with. And it was late, you know, after midnight already. Everyone's tired and this child cannot get comfortable. After a while, to be honest, I was frustrated, annoyed, versions of angry. Just substitute those words. Maybe you use them. Um, And I was tired. So I came up with a quick solution in my anger. I'm going to make her sleep on the hard floor until she appreciates the soft bed. I know, great parenting. Uh, You can imagine how that went. Uh, It did not go well. Uh, She was crying. I wanted to cry. And eventually Annie was mad at me because she didn't see the wisdom in my experiment. 
Everyone was crying and I was mad. And he suggested trying something different, you know, like comfort and concern and listening. It was like a miracle happened. I apologized to them, held the girl who shall remain nameless, and after a few minutes, we were all asleep. I remember at some point thinking, the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. It didn't produce anything good in my daughter. It didn't produce anything good in me. And it's so futile, yet we go back to it like a drug. I mean, just think about your own relationships, how much you use anger to gain control or advantage or change, and how little good it really produces in the end. Since this is true, James says we should do something different. He says, instead of using anger to think we're going to produce something good, James says, instead be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. You know, when we believe this practical fact he's shown us, then we come to discover that the most important thing we can do is slow that anger down and shift to discovery, to become curious about what's actually at the roots of the situation that is going on. So first off, we see this instruction, slow down and ask yourself, why am I so angry right now? I mean, have you ever done that when you were angry? Just looked at it and began yourself to slow down and and say, what's really fueling this anger in me? Much of the time, anger plays on some stored up past experiences and we import it into the present situation. That is dangerous. You know, people, we, we can all probably tell stories about somebody flipping out over something seemingly small. But behind that was a lot of anger and bitterness. So the thing wasn't really the thing that was set on fire. It's dangerous, honestly. Our anger is like a tinderbox waiting to explode. The anger of man is fast, but all over Scripture, God is described as slow to anger. The other thing about James' instruction here in, the, in verse 19 is, is that it's intended to counterbalance the fact that we quickly think we understood everything and know exactly what happened, therefore our solutions are great. Anger plays on our belief that we see through the real things going on and our quick assessment is right. But on top of understanding what may be really driving our anger and slowing down, we are encouraged to shift to not just slow down, but to shift to listening mode for the other person. You ever think about, you know, even in a, in a conflict, the other person has some reasons, some things that are going on, even when you've already determined they're terrible reasons. And some of those things might be fueled by misconceptions and misunderstandings, fears, ways they've experienced that emotion in the past. Things you don't understand. And so James says, actually, the way to deal with situations that elicit anger is to begin to shift to listening mode. And he tells us that we need to, we need to prefer listening and be slow to speak that because every time I've been in a situation where I needed to really listen, I wanted to correct a bunch of things I was listening to. So James says, hang on, put that aside. You're not... You're not thinking in the right direction. This isn't about winning the argument. It's about understanding what's beneath the argument. What's fueling this situation. Most of our conflicts are fueled by an unwillingness to listen and truly understand one another. And a quick reaction to anger. 
Try it sometime in a situation where you know there is danger for anger. You'll want to say things, but you really need to hear people out. Ask questions. Listen intently to understand with a sense of compassion, even if you think you're right. You might learn something about how to love that person, how to care for that person. You may discover that the situation is way different than you thought. In verse 21, then, James really moves us beyond this initial practical truth and advice to try to deepen our resources for really dealing with our hearts when it comes to anger. So with James' help, let's, let's move beyond just the practical fact of anger and let's learn to put away our anger in exchange for wisdom. James just doesn't, he doesn't just leave us without some power and some help to, to move us along in this. He wants to help us put away our anger and all of the effects that it has in exchange for receiving with meekness God's real wisdom. So let's learn to put away our anger. James helps us do this uh, by presenting a warning to us and a witness provided by Christ. I want to show, show you both the ways he does that. A warning and a witness. Verse 21 begins with instruction based on a warning. Let's put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. This isn't just a general call to avoiding sin. It's, it's in the context of this conversation about anger where he says, you know what happens? The result of unchecked anger is incredible filthiness in the way we live our lives and rampant wickedness, wickedness that really is in control of us way more than we're in control of it. And so he begins to warn us of that. I would bet that many, if we just stopped and thought about it for the moment, I would bet that many of the worst things you have said or done in your life came about as a result of giving way to your anger. James is really saying here what Proverbs tells us over and over about anger. A few years ago, I did a study of anger in Proverbs. There were three things that really stuck out. I just want to mention them here as a part of this warning that comes from all of Scripture. The first one is Proverbs never associates anger with the wise, only scoffers and fools. In a book of wisdom, that's the reality of how it looks at anger. Proverbs 14, 29, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 29, 8, scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turns away wrath. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. So Proverbs never associates anger with wisdom, but always with foolishness and folly. The second thing Proverbs shows us is Proverbs treats anger like a contagious disease. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word, one spoken in anger, stirs up anger. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger in others. It's contagious. Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 29, 22. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. You know, there's a manner in which we are responsible to some degree in stirring up the occasions for sin in other people's lives. 
Proverbs 25, 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. The context of that self-control is letting anger run rampant. A broken down city that is ready for destruction. Anything can penetrate it and stir it up. Proverbs 19, 19, a man of great wrath will pay the penalty for if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. You hear that? Uh, You know, sometimes we can bail someone out from the effects of their angry behavior, but someone who is given to anger, you can't stop the destruction that will come again as they don't turn away from it. Proverbs 18, 19, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. An angry spirit brings one to quarreling. And what he, what he says here is, he says it's like the bars of a castle. Eventually, our anger not only leads to strife and destruction, but it leads to loneliness, isolation, and separation. Like the bars of a castle. So here, we need to hear and heed the warning about where anger eventually leads and find fresh motivation to put it away in exchange for wisdom. That we would learn to be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to get angry. That we would heed the warning of the dangerous destruction of anger that stirring it up in us is like a contagious disease that we won't be able to control and will have effects that we didn't anticipate. And you can't avoid the destruction. We got all of this motivation to do that, some of which we know and understand, maybe some which right now we have a clearer picture of. But ultimately, James doesn't just have practical life wisdom for us and life observations in mind. He speaks to us and motivates us through the witness of Jesus Himself and His saving work for us. What does Jesus witness, His way of life and His cross, say to our anger? What does it say? Well, the genuine antidote for our angry souls is a genuine faith in Jesus that appropriates his meekness in exchange for our anger. That comes to really receive with meekness the word of the gospel. What James says here is brilliant. He says, we don't have, listen, we don't have the resources within us to deal with anger. We need a new word and a new seed implanted in us that we nourish and grow by faith. So the perspective that you possess in your own human wisdom isn't enough for you to to keep the dangerous effects of anger at bay in you. We actually have to become people who humbly open ourselves up to the new way of Jesus that actually rebukes the, the seeming wisdom that we have inside for a better way. This is what James is saying. We need an external vision and wisdom beyond ourselves that will change our mind about what we need to do. He says it's found in the gospel, the same gospel that saves our souls. And what is that gospel? It's that Jesus had every right to be angry over our sin. And act against us in his justice. See, we were created 
and gifted by God with incredible blessings and privileges, yet we've all turned away in favor of our own way. And it's led to out-of-control, angry unrighteousness. We've been participants in the sins that corrupt our world. And our sins are an affront to Jesus' genuine love and genuine justice. You know, even in his life, Jesus was mistreated. He was betrayed, which often makes us angry. He was not given the respect that he deserved. He was wrongly accused. But he had not come to destroy us in justice. He came to pay the penalty himself in his love so that we could experience reconciliation with God, forgiveness, and genuine healing. In the greatest act of injustice in human history, Jesus died on a cross while being mocked as a fool. And he could have called. He could have flexed his power flexed his strength, and he could have called into action all the power of heaven to execute vengeance, but instead he looked on those at the foot of the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he looks at you today, and he says the same. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You didn't know all that your anger was producing. The effects it would have. The damage it would cause. And the damage is real. And the sorrow can be great. But Jesus says to you, if you will receive this rebuke, that you've been a fool, been unjust yourself, and turned to him in faith, his death on the cross can cover your sin as well. You can be forgiven. You see, Jesus responds with the meekness of self-sacrifice to the angry injustice of the world. And he produces something new. He produces something new. Where the anger of man could not produce the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God stepped in to show us how we could humble ourselves and entrust ourselves to the Father. Jesus even sets an example for us in dealing with injustice where he surrenders himself to God the Father, trusting in his perfect plan and justice which is far exceeded by his mercy and love. And Jesus produces in us something new. He died on that cross for our sins, but he rose on the third day because of the power of God's approval and hope over his sacrifice to demonstrate his love for us. And what James is saying is, until that becomes our everything, like for you, if you're struggling with this anger and rage, do you believe that God produced something, the most powerful, beautiful thing in you, your hope for salvation through Jesus' meek willingness to go to the cross? Until then, 
You won't be willing to lay your life down and sacrifice when somebody else has you angry. And see, he says we need to receive with a sort of meekness that says, God, my way, it hasn't been it. Sure, there's things that have happened to you, things that you've done, but Lord, this anger has me trapped and it doesn't produce your righteousness. God, come produce in me a new way as I look to the cross, my, my true hope, my true salvation, and set me free. And some of you need to take that step today to say, God, I want to surrender my sinful anger, my sinful path, and I want to turn to you and trust that you can make me new. Lord, would you cleanse my heart? Forgive me. I trust that what Jesus paid for on the cross was my sin. Thank you for saving me. I want to receive this implanted word of promise in the gospel today. And if you already believe this, today is the day where we repent and trust the way of Jesus to put away anger and watch through meekness how he brings resurrection and new life to things that were really dead. And we come and we surrender our way and our wisdom and with meekness we receive his way. I ask you to bow with me as we pray. Lord, we confess we need your grace and your help, Lord, even as we consider these things. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be working all across this room to, to bring us to a place of meekness and receptivity to the way of the gospel. Lord, that we would see displayed in Christ the pathway out of our own anger, the healing and reconciliation we need for our own sin. Lord, that we could be reconciled to you and experience your life, your promise, and entrust our lives to you. So Lord, would you help us even now as we respond, as we share in the broken body, in the shed blood of Jesus, would you remind us of the better way of Christ's love and mercy. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment,